the model that I go with is every decision I ever make is wrong. The only question is how wrong is it? Or how long will it be correct enough to continue to function? Welcome back to How I Built This, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Scottish tech companies and their successes. I'm Jack Stephen, and as always, we're brought to you by Cathcart Technology, Scottish technology recruitment experts. On episode 18 of How I Built This, I'm joined by Emil Hansen, the co-founder and CTO of Edinburgh Scale-Up Continuum Industries. Continuum have built an AI-powered infrastructure development platform that enables utility and renewable companies to instantly visualise, analyse and comprehensively assess routing options for power lines, cables and pipelines. Their mission is to accelerate the world's transition to renewable energy. Emil, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Hi, Jack. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Good, good. I thought it'd be a really good time to get you on, obviously, with the recent announcement of the Series A funding. We'll go into that in a little bit kind of later on, um, but just wanted to kind of find out a little bit about your journey and, and how you kind of came to, to founding Continuum. I believe you're originally from Sweden, is it? And it was about 2015 you came over to Edinburgh. Yes. Yeah. What kind of made you pick Edinburgh? Like, why did you, did you kind of come over here? To be honest, I think in hindsight, it's uh, more of a, a lucky, luckily worked out than something uh, diligently planned. Yeah. But uh, generally, um, when I was going through school in Sweden, I, uh, through sort of seventh grade, so from 14 onwards, I started taking a fair bit of education in English. So in Sweden, there's quite a lot of flexibility of how you study. And so you can do a sort of English curriculum taught, you know, language of the world and so on. Graduated after that, wanted to see a little bit more of the world, but at that time, probably not too much more because uh, went, uh, you know, an hour flight away. Then researching uh, universities within the UK, uh, Edinburgh stood out as a, as a very nice one, went to some of the sort of virtual tours and things of that nature. Yeah, it looked really promising, applied and uh, luckily I got in. Nice, nice. And am I right in saying it was electrical and mechanical engineering that you you studied? Yeah, so studied electrical and mechanical, so about two-thirds of of each, let's say. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Obviously, Continuum is like a a kind of mix of that as well as the the kind of software part of it. Did you kind of see yourself going into a kind of software-focused business or, or what was, how did that kind of come about? So I, when I was going to choose my university, I, I thought about it uh, long and hard. I, I really enjoyed sort of as a kid building things, you know, remote control cars or, or whatnot. And uh, as I chose university, I was choosing between mechanical, electrical and software. So the sort of ideal thing at the time was robotics or, or anything in that field. But uh, Edinburgh didn't offer robotics. And so I thought, okay, with software, I can always buy a laptop and start writing code, rather naively thinking something along the lines of how hard can that be? Whereas with uh, mechanical and electrical, you know, no one's going to give you uh, <laughs> the massive equipment you need to uh, to weld or to, to manufacture anything out of metal. And so my choice at the time was, I want to do all three, but I can't do two of them on my own. So that's that's why I went with, with what I did. You touched on Continuum. So yeah, we have a lot of, uh, lot of crossover between them. So we're, we're building software for engineers. So understanding, at least to some degree, the way that 
engineers think, the way that they do stuff and the the constraints and challenges they face has uh, been really valuable in, in building software for them. I noticed on your, your LinkedIn that you were kind of technical director at, it looked like a, a university initiative, um, Hyped. What, what was that? <laughs> a very good question. So <laughs> uh, Hyped, as, as a bit of background, I, I joined it uh, almost by accident. So Hyped uh, is so plastered over, over the university um, campus and in the beginning of my second year. Uh, Hyperloop Society. So Hyperloop being the idea of essentially putting an airplane and a train into one thing. So you have the speed of an airplane, but you put it on on track or in a tube uh, on the ground. Uh, the idea being get the best of both worlds, very high energy efficiency, uh, very low environmental impact. And for a young engineer, very cool technology to play with. So I first saw the, the signs for, for Hypes and I thought, no way. People are actually trying to build these prototypes. I thought it was some, you know, appreciation club or fan club or something like that. And so I didn't uh, didn't pay much attention to it. But I was going to grab dinner with a friend of mine one day. And he said, yeah, sure, let's go. But come by this meeting first. I think you're going to enjoy it. So I showed up expecting, you know, to sit for 20 minutes and then head, head out. But there I met uh, one of my co-founders, Adam, who was leading the society at the time. And who was talking about, okay, we are going to build a Hyperloop vehicle. We're going to put it on a boat or a plane. We're going to take it over to California to SpaceX headquarters. And we're going to race it there against some of the best engineering teams in the world. Uh, he was selling this very, very nicely. Uh, if you get a chance to talk to him, he's a, a very charismatic guy. But uh, I was uh, I was sold instantly and, uh, and signed up. So from there, I joined what was called the Dynamic Team, where we looked at, long story short, if you try to get an airplane to fit in a tube, uh, that's about two, two, three, four meters in diameter. You need to control it very specifically, right? An airplane can sway around in the air. If uh, you do that within a steel tube, it's, it's not going to end well for you. So we, I was in the dynamic team. We were doing essentially magnetic levitation and uh, stability within the tube. I uh, started out there doing uh, sort of making up as I went along simulations of, uh, of magnetic levitation, a lot of MATLAB scripts, a lot of Googling, a lot of uh, that, that looks about right. And uh, throughout that year, there were a couple of opportunities to take on more more responsibility within the team. So first, I, I joined as just a member of the dynamic team. And around Christmas, the, the leader for the dynamic team went on industrial placement, and I volunteered to, to take his spot. Uh, so I did. And uh, later, again in that year, I got involved in more and more things uh, around the manufacturing, around the electronics, and so on. Uh, and towards the end, I was I was voted in as technical director, which in the subsequent year meant leading a team of, I think we were at the start over a hundred engineers uh, working on this project, and I think we were thirty-ish that then went to to California to to compete in the end. Nice. So it was a a big and very exciting project. Yeah, especially um, like so young and so kind of early on in your career and obviously in university, it seems like quite a, a kind of big project to, to take on. Yeah, it was super exciting. The young naive and clueless uh, will, will, <laughs> will get you far if you don't admit it. Yeah, yeah. And um, you obviously mentioned you met your you're kind of one of the co-founders um, through that project. Is that where the kind of idea of Continuum kind of started to to kind of unfold? Or yes, it started to to catalyze from there. So 
in that meeting, I met Adam, the one of my co-founders, and later on met Craig, the, the other co-founder. So in short, the society was split into two, into two parts, the technical side, the side that built the vehicles and wanted to compete and race with them, and the commercial side that took part in a different hybrid competition geared more towards, okay, assuming we solve the engineering problems, how can we make this a reality? What business cases can we make for, for a system like this? So if you can go from Edinburgh to London, and I think we said about 35 minutes, what, what would that mean, right? How many people can you take? What would a ticket likely cost? How long would it take to build? How many people can you transport? Uh, these kinds of questions. And from there, the, it started to become clear that there, there are a lot of engineering challenges with Hyperloop. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but some of the biggest challenges are on the civil engineering side. So on the technical, in a technical team, we were working with mechanical and electrical engineering, but we started realizing that the civil engineering is the biggest challenge here. So how do you get a, a steel tube that's so four meters in diameter? How do you put that across an entire country uh, and then shoot something almost at the speed of sound through that tube? That tube needs to be very strong. It needs to be very straight and it needs to be very precise. If you're going uh, hundreds of kilometers an hour and you suddenly hit a bump, that's going to be extremely uncomfortable. So it, it needs to be a very smooth, smooth thing built. So we started looking at this. Around this point, we also realized that we're about half a billion dollars behind the, the leading Hyperloop company at the time. So if you wanted to try to build hardware, that was a massive gap to close. What we thought instead was, let's look at the software side of this. We had some experience uh, sim running simulations. So we started building our, our first product or our first prototype, which was uh, a simulation and optimization engine for these systems. So again, imagine you have a, a tube that goes from London to Edinburgh and you want to send pods through this tube. One of the key aspects of Hyperloop is you have to pump a lot of the air out through that. So to get the, the efficiency of the plane, you need low air pressure. But the vacuum pumps, they also use a lot of power. So trying to then find the balance of where does the vacuum, the energy to pull the vacuum, how do the gains diminish against the decreased air resistance? And how does that change as you put more or uh, more or fewer pods in the system and so on and so forth? So that's that's really where we started out. No, that's, that's really interesting. Continuum officially became a company either 2018, 2019, how long before that actually happened where you kind of started talking about the idea and, and kind of putting things into place? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a slowly running conversation for, for some time. I forget how long, but at the same time as that, we were building these prototypes for the space of competition. So I remember uh, as, as we started the company, uh, I was uh, sitting in a, in a car on the freeway of LA writing writing documents and writing stuff for customers whilst going back and forth between our uh, our Airbnb and the, the spaces competition. So uh, it was a very, let's say, fluid transition from uh, student project to idea to company. Obviously, the, now you've been in business for kind of four or five years. I think is the platform called Optioneer. You've obviously touched on it a little bit, but do you mind kind of going into it in a, a bit more kind of detail? The general idea with Optioneer, the, to take a step back, why do we have it? Why should anyone care? 
We're at the stage at the moment with our developments towards net zero and the effects of climate change, where quite a few things need to change in our built environment. So we have everyone from Bill Gates to Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about the importance of building transmission line infrastructure, building the infrastructure that will get us through the next 100 years. Uh, Bloomberg recently re released a report saying that to get to net zero by 2040, we need to build about 80 million kilometers of energy infrastructure or transmission line infrastructure. Now that's around 2000 circumnavigations of the globe or 570 kilometers per hour nonstop for the next 16 years. So well, where we are, <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. And it's also a lot more than the, <laughs> than the global engineering profession can cater to at the moment. Because if you want to build a transmission line at the moment, it takes you roughly about a decade from, hey, we really need this kind of right now to someone saying, okay, you're allowed to start building. And after that, you have to do the actual work of building. the thing. So designing these things is more challenging than it's ever been before. And for good reason. We, we don't want someone uh, bulldozing uh, environmental habitats. We don't want people uh, building through people's backyards and uh, uh, causing issues there. There are a lot of things that we want to be mindful of. So all in all, good reasons why this is challenging. However, what we've seen is that the, the tools within the industry have not kept up with the development of, of regulations and of considerations that engineers need to factor in. So we end up in a situation where you have a lot of people, you have environmental planners, you have engineers, you have uh, consenting specialists, you have public uh, consultation managers who are all really good at their jobs, but they have so many connections that they need to worry about. You have engineers who need to worry about five or six or seven other disciplines. And each of these disciplines needs to worry about five or six or seven other disciplines. So it makes so many interconnections between in conflicting interest in designing these systems that progress is very slow. Now, what Optioneer does is putting all of this into one platform, into one system. So at the core of Optioneer, we have a set of AI algorithms that take in a bunch of geospatial data, so information about the world, and they take in a lot of engineering parameters. Think, what is the cost of steel per, per, uh, per cubic meter? What is the cost of this or that? Or which environmental designations do we need to be careful about? Which ones do we have to fully avoid? Which ones can we mitigate against? And so on and so forth. It takes all of this, feeds it into a set of AI algorithms, that will, in a couple of hours, churn through hundreds of thousands of mi or millions of alternative systems and spit out a, a number of suggestions. It will spit out, if you care mostly about cost, here's what that would look like, and then it will give you a range of alternatives. So if you care mostly about environment, here's what that will look like. And crucially in between, here are the trade-offs you would be making as you move from a more cost-effective to a more environmentally effective solution. Around that, we have a lot of visualization and collaboration tools. So the idea is you feed all your information and your engineering expertise into Optioneer. Optioneer gives you a number of alternatives, and you then have a one-stop shop where everyone who's got a stake in the design of this system can come together and can make a determination quite quickly of which solution we want to go with. Yeah.
No, that's a, a really good explanation of it. And in terms of, you obviously mentioned normally it would kind of take 10 years with implementing Optioneer, how much does that kind of cut it down by? Yeah, so we have, I'm going to give you the best case scenario and okay. I'm going to give you the more realistic scenario. Yeah. So we don't yet touch on all of those 10 years. We're still working on the first sort of one or two years. The most efficiently we've ever done this is we've roughly done the first year in one day. More realistically, the first year in something like two to four weeks. We've, we've managed to make <laughs> relatively large dents in the first, uh, the early stages of this planning process. And we're now working our way through the, the later stages to, to try to do similar things. Yeah, and that's amazing. And you kind of mentioned that obviously that you've, you've already done it with with certain kind of companies. It looks like you've partnered with quite a lot of the big names in the industry um, already, like National Grid, SSE, SGN. Has that been kind of slowly over time or have you kind of managed to get in with them quite early? It, it's been a, it's been quite a long process, both from from our side to to prove to the to our, our partners and our customers that what we do can be relied upon because it's fundamentally quite a scary prospect, right? If, if you're an engineer working on a system to say, hey, there are some kids here that have built a, an algorithm that they say can do great things. So we've done a lot of work both with them in terms of proof of concepts to show that not just in theory it works, but in practice, it produces results that, that they care about. And we've also done a lot on the product side. So I mentioned before that we generate a bunch of options with each run of our of our optimizer. We don't just generate a line on a map and say, cool, thanks, see you next time. With each of these lines, we spit out a lot of information. We spit out thousands of metrics. We include things like zones of visual influence. So with each line, you will get a polygon around it that says, if you were to build a system, from where can someone see it? So you could go, for instance, which if I build a system between, say, London and Edinburgh, from which postcodes would someone be able to look up and see the system? So building a lot of these things in that allows engineers to go in and build confidence of does it work the way that, that it should work? And does it actually hold up, right? Can they not just say this is a good solution, but they can say this is a good solution because A, B, C, D, E, and F. And we looked at 200 alternatives that are all worse for this or this or this reason. So uh, it's been a, a process to get here, but it's always been, <laughs> it's always been very interesting and always been, uh, maybe in hindsight, always been moving forward, but uh, <laughs> always been moving forward. Yeah, good. No, it's good to hear. And you obviously kind of touched on it as well in, in terms of the kind of algorithms and, and AI aspect of it. Obviously, AI has been everywhere for the last kind of year. Obviously, it was a kind of around for ages before that, but really kind of come to the forefront of everything. Was that always like a core part of the, the solution? Was that always going to be a core part of the solution? Yes. So... Uh, uh, hopefully I can remember the, the conversations we had uh, sort of five and a half years ago when this kicked off. But uh, to begin with, we started looking at what's called deterministic algorithms, something where you will always get the same answer every time and you can tell exactly how we got to that answer. We started looking at these for these systems because they're simpler, they're cheaper to run, and <laughs> they're much more predictable. But 
we quickly realized that with the amount of information we wanted to process, they were not going to, to be able to cut it. So if we wanted to look at which environmental constraints should you avoid, then roughly where on the map should you route it, that makes sense. They're, they're very good for that. But when you then start including, okay, now say you were building a power line, what towers do you want to put in there? How high do you want them off the ground? How do you how do you trade off going above ground or below ground for this particular option? How do curves impact the cost of your system? The deterministic algorithms really start to struggle. It starts to become an amount of information that they just can't deal with anymore. So we pretty quickly came to that conclusion uh, and decided to go with our evolutionary computing algorithms or genetic algorithms. As the name implies, they simulate natural selection. So if you imagine a map and you imagine a start and an endpoint, they will start by drawing complete nonsense uh, on the map. And they'll, they'll draw a few hundred permutations of complete nonsense. Then they will rank each of these and decide which one is more nonsense than the others, i.e. is there anything in any of these that's valuable in any way. It will then take the ones with some value to them, mix them up, shuffle them, make some slight modifications to each, and then test them again and say, okay, we now have 200 options, 2,000 options, well, depending on the situation, and say, okay, the, these are less nonsense now. And as you go through this process over hundreds or even thousands of generations, you end up with uh, something that begins as pure nonsense and that ends up as a, as a viable engineering system or a viable system that, that you can actually build. You obviously kind of mentioned it as well that you've kind of done the, the first year almost. You've recently announced the, the kind of funding. Um, is the funding to kind of start advancing through the, the kind of different years or is it to kind of just scale the company or what's the, the kind of next kind of plans? There are a few things we, we want to do with it. The first one is to generally just accelerate. Uh, as, as I mentioned before, we have uh, about 16 years till 2040. There's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built by that point. So we got to go and we got to go now. So taking in uh, this investment is a way for us to accelerate that. In terms of what we want to do with it specifically, uh, we want to grow to more geographies. So we're recently uh, launching the US where they have uh, a lot of work uh, coming in terms of upgrading their grid to, uh, to the standards required for, for these kinds of uh, trans uh, transformations. And we're also looking at both later stages and bringing in more and more of these groups that I mentioned at the beginning. So making sure that that all of them can do all of their work or as much of their work as possible within Optioneer and really simplify the lines of communication and the the, the trace, traces of decision-making. Yeah. With the, the pandemic as well, did that kind of slow the company down at all? How did it kind of affect you? Yeah. I <laughs> I've been thinking about this because people have asked me before and yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, having, you know, doing this straight out of uni, never having uh, never having had a real job, I don't really know what, what normal looks like in this uh, in this situation. I was in the fortunate position through COVID to to be living with uh, with two of uh, <laughs> two of my co-founders. And so we could still keep that very rapid iteration going and uh, things could yeah, run very quickly. We uh, we did have, we just got used to working remotely, right? We started hiring the team just after the first lockdown had kicked off. So it's all really we ever knew. 
we did have some funny situations where two people had worked together for almost a year before they met. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm afraid I can't tell you the effect that it had. Yeah. So we don't have anything to compare it to. No, no, fair enough. Yeah, I remember, I can't remember who it was I spoke with, but they said it was quite a, a scary situation. They hired somebody during the pandemic and they were dropping like 3,000, 4,000 pound worth of software kit off to their house. There's someone that they've never met before and it was just, yeah, a complete kind of unknown in, in that sense. Um, and you, you kind of touched on it there. You, you kind of started hiring at the, the kind of after the first lockdown. You've kind of slowly built the team over this time. I know that we kind of spoke off air that you've kind of built the the engineering team maybe in a kind of different way than than kind of other companies have done. Would you kind of care to kind of expand on that? Yeah, of course. So to give us the to, to give the context for this, um, oh, as we started, um, we didn't really know what other companies tended to do. We just know that most people we spoke to in other companies were not ecstatic about how, especially the management structures worked in those companies. Uh, there were a lot of silos. Uh, you had you had managers who half of their job was, was caring about you and half of their job was uh, making sure that you shipped as much as possible. And generally a lot of, a lot of things that, that didn't work brilliantly. So we started from, let's not take too much advice from how established industries work because no one seems to be super happy with that. A, a couple of years into, into Continuum, I met uh, a guy who we just uh, who recently joined us called Ramsey. And with him, we, we've been discussing for a long time around essentially the, the way that we plan work changed dramatically with the agile methodologies coming in. The way that we ship work has changed dramatically with DevOps and pushing straight to production and things of that nature. The way that we manage organizations and people hasn't really changed since late industrial revolution. We, we still refer to people as line managers, as in the people watching the assembly line. And I'd be really curious to get your take on, you know, are we doing something foolish here? Yeah. But uh, our approach to this is to have the people responsible for shipping code and product be completely distinct from the people responsible for people getting along, working well together, growing as, as individuals and professionals and, and uh, working in teams. We have one set of people who are responsible or managers from a, from a technical, from a product perspective, and different people who are responsible from a people perspective. So people whose only and sole job it is to make sure that, uh, Jack, if you were to work with us, that... Uh, you are as happy and as productive in your role as you can be and that your team functions as well as it possibly can. So the idea being you have one person solely focused on that. When deadlines come up, when things get hectic, there is no that goes out the window because uh, you're too busy shipping code. That's your that's their only job. And so they should continue to make sure that uh, continue to work towards a, as a well-functioning teams as possible. Yeah. No, I, I really like that. Um, it does seem like a very kind of modern approach to it. Like it, the, the thing that kind of popped up in my head there is I, I play football. I loved football all my kind of life that you get two kind of managers these days almost. You you get the, the man managers who aren't great at the coaching side, but they're the kind of motivators. They, they kind of the ones that put their arm around the shoulder and, and kind of make sure you're happy, make sure you're kind of in line and, and kind of 
all pushing towards the one thing whereas you get the coaches that are maybe more like your kind of technical person that is trying to improve them and make sure that the kind of technical aspect of the the work is is going the in the direction they kind of want it as well so exactly that, that was the kind of thing that um popped into my head there and yeah it's something that is a lot more kind of common in, in football now so and i think they've t- obviously take management advice from from lots of different stuff so no i i really like that approach i'm guessing it's something that you've found has worked pretty well for the, the team kind of feedback from the team's been good yeah so well so far it's relatively relatively new so okay. uh ramsey coming in has been the the first person to come into this role uh previously it's been uh, myself and our, our head of ai wearing a lot of hats at the same time yeah but um but yeah so far people have been have been very excited about it and and very seen it as a very promising thing but uh, the way that we're treating it is um <laughs> we're coming up with this as, as we go so I would be shocked if there was not, you know, two, three, four revisions of it before we find something that truly scales. But uh, that's the way we're approaching it, right? We're, we're going to try this out. It feels like a promising idea, and uh, we'll see how it evolves. Yeah. No, I'm excited to to hear how that goes. We touched on earlier as well about the the kind of funding. Um, I think it was maybe October or November. It kind of was announced the the Series A, um, which is obviously amazing. How has it kind of been since the the announcement? I'm guessing it's been a, a pretty busy time. Yeah, uh, it's been a, a busy. A lot of a lot of really good stuff all happening at once. I think is the best way I can I can put it. At the same time as we're we're building out the engineering team bringing on a, a few more people. We're also starting to spin up a, a proper sort of official product team because uh, so far that's been a a shared responsibility between a few people. And now we're starting to make this a, a proper proper role and a proper, uh, proper team. We're also, as I mentioned before, expanding to the US. So there are a lot of things all coming together uh, at the same time. I think uh, my job as a, as a founder right now is a lot of just keeping everyone pointed in the same direction and oh you should talk to to him or her or you should yeah. uh, you should make sure that the two of you agree on something or uh, or things of that nature so really intense uh, but uh, but a lot of fun yeah good good and yeah kind of hats off to you for the the kind of funding as well i know just speaking with other kind of founders on this podcast and just you know obviously with within recruitment as well that funding and the, the kind of process of that has has been a lot harder over the last kind of year just with the economy and stuff i know that you've went through a few different kind of funding rounds over the the years have you been quite involved in that or, or how have you kind of found it i've been involved i wouldn't say i've been very involved uh, usually it's uh, it's craig our ceo who does the majority of the fundraising but uh, of course being a founder you're always involved a, a little bit of course, talking to him a lot and stuff like that, I think uh, I've gotten a pretty good idea of, of the the various uh, moving pieces, let's say. But uh, but yeah, it's it's always been interesting. Always, you get to meet a lot of people who think in sometimes very similar and sometimes very different ways to yourself. So it uh, tends to lead to very interesting discussions and uh, conversations. No, good, good. And you touched on it there, founding continuum. Did you always have an idea that you you wanted to kind of found? your own company is that something that you think you've been kind of passionate about like growing up for <laughs> it's a hard one to answer on the one hand i always liked kind of doing new things 
trying to trying to figure out new ways of doing things or I, I would quickly find find it uh, boring when I knew how to do something already. So always kind of in that general spirit of things. Growing up, I was never confident enough to believe I could ever pull something like this off. So not until university and the, the Hyperloop Society that it started to dawn on me that this was a, a realistic possibility. It's always something, yeah, that... that it's been kind of a, a dream in the back of my mind yeah. when I was a kid and sort of slowly migrating forwards uh, as uh, as time went by. Yeah, good. It's good to hear that, honestly, like university initiatives have kind of helped you, kind of give you the confidence to, to kind of go and do that. And just to touch back on, I know that Continuum had kind of started while you were actually in your, maybe in your last year at a university. How was it kind of balancing um, kind of both at the same time? Yeah, that, that that was intense. Yeah. So, so for context, two of my co-founders, Adam and Greg, are there. Well, they were a year above me uh, at university, and so when it came time to start the company, there was no wait for another year and see what happens. It was you know either go or no go, and my my decision was well in hindsight go, <laughs> but I was pondering for a while: is can I do this? Is this is this possible? And I decided. Let's go and and I'll find out. I don't know if there was a lot of very deliberate balancing to it. I think it was uh, more a matter of what thing is the most pressing yeah. at this point in time, and generally trying to make university work as as well as possibly could and in combination with it. Some classes and courses worked pretty well together. So. So far, I've been talking only about the work we've been doing on transmission lines, but we actually work on a lot of other areas, generally anything connecting a point A and a point B. So we work with subsea cables, we work with hydrogen pipelines, water pipelines, uh, and things of that nature. At the time, for instance, studying uh, fluid dynamics was really helpful when you're trying to design uh, a system for <laughs> for water pipelines. So some of them played very nicely to together, uh, others didn't. And generally, it was uh, uh, making as much out of university as, as I possibly could. But sometimes it was uh, <laughs> it was stretching it. Uh, I remember one uh, one exam that I had where I had very little time to study for it, and I was looking at a question having no real idea what it was asking about. But I had a formula sheet, and there were symbols within the question. And so I was I remember sitting there and just matching the symbols in the question to the formula sheet to try to get something that uh, that got to the, the simple layout asked for in the end of the at the end of the question. So yeah. some exams were really touch and go, but uh, but generally sort of do what you gotta do kind of thing. Yeah, good, good. And is there any other well, any advice or, or anything like that you would kind of pass on to, to other founders or has there been any kind of major challenges you've kind of had? being a first-time founder. <laughs> How much time do you have? Um, <laughs> I think there, there are two things that uh, primarily I would, I would say are the biggest ones. The first one is uh, expectations going in. So I went in as a CTO as, because I was the, the most engineer of the engineering founders. But very quickly, the role is some degree of engineering, but it's much more people and understanding the context of, of a product and a business and customers and, and all of these things. So um, if uh, <laughs> I went into a role of CTO expecting to be a full-time engineer doing just engineering stuff, 
that turned out to be, uh, let's say, not the case. The second one is a is a mental model I've been using for some time. And when I first say it out loud, it might sound a bit gloomy, but I'll, I'll explain it and hopefully it makes sense. So the model that I go with is every decision I ever make is wrong. The only question is how wrong is it? But how long will it be correct enough to continue to function? So if we take uh, uh, Newton's theory of gravity, it is wrong, but it held for hundreds of years before anyone questioned it. And to this day, it still works perfectly fine for most applications. So my takeaway from this and to tame my inner perfectionist is make a decision, move on, revisit it when the assumptions don't hold anymore, revisit it when you've learned more when you know better and uh, and so on yeah now that's some great advice you you've kind of touched on it as well which is something i actually kind of wanted to ask about it seems like the platform is very much um transferable and adaptable to kind of other industries you obviously talked about the the kind of subsea um industry and, and a couple others as well is that what the kind of plan is going forward as well to try and move into kind of different markets yeah, so we've done that uh, okay. quite quite a long time ago. Oh, nice. I've, I've spoken about one industry so far because there's a lot to talk about around yeah, it and yeah. just talking about one keeps it simple from, from the beginning. But uh, we actually started out with water pipelines. To take you back to what I was talking about in the beginning about Hyperloops, we went from simulating Hyperloop systems and trying to optimize them to working with one of the Hyperloop companies to try to build a root planner. Basically, they spend a lot of money pitching their systems to governments and governments kept asking very relevant questions such as which two cities would you like to connect first? How much do you think that would cost? What are any challenges relating to to doing that? And for them, that was very expensive and also not super repeatable work because they had to go to they had to go to, let's say, France, they had to go to UK, they had to go to, say, Sweden, just making up countries, but, but each time build out a separate business case. And what we were doing with them was trying to figure out how to root their system and to give some of these very high-level overviews. Now, in hindsight, and what we realized over time was that is not a big enough market to make a startup. Uh, but through this work, we we met a bunch of the engineering firms and engineering consultants that would hypothetically build one of these systems at some point in the future, who told us, it's great you're doing this with Hyperloop, but we've got the exact same problem with water pipelines and energy transmission. Any chance you can make, make that work? Yeah. And uh, we went home, scratched our heads and said, first, yes, and two, I wish I thought of that. And then we started started doing that. So we first went into water pipelines. And from there, we expanded out to uh, power transmission, so overhead power transmission, uh, underground power cables, uh, subsea cables, uh, hydrogen pipelines, water pipelines. And I think we've even looked at uh, CO2 pipelines. Nice. Now, that's, that's really interesting. And you touched on it as well that you can recently broke into the to US market. Um, is there plans to go to other locations as well? Is that kind of in the near future or is it kind of a bit further away? Yeah, so, so far we're primarily within Europe and the US. So in Europe, 
it's relatively easy to to move between countries because your similar time zones, uh, metric units help a lot when you do a, an engineering uh, system or more just consistent units help a lot when you're doing an engineering system. Going to the US has been a few challenges, such as we now need to support two systems of measurements at the same time, making sure that they work smoothly together. We also need systems deployed in, in multiple regions, which doesn't sound like a lot, but for the engineers that need to make them work and need to make them stay in sync, it's a bit of a challenge. And then also things like time zone differences and uh, and things of that nature. So we, we're investing quite a lot at the moment in, in going to the US at the same time as, as we're spreading out through through Europe. Long-term, our, our long-term dream is every project on the planet starts in Optioneer, but uh, I'll have to be fuzzy about the exact details of, of how to get there. Of course. Yeah, no worries at all. And is there anything else? You've obviously touched on quite a lot in terms of what the you're obviously hiring at the moment. You're you're basically accelerating the company. Is there anything to expect or anything that you want to kind of go over for the next six to 12 months that you'd kind of like to shout about? I'm, uh, <laughs> there's a lot I'd like to, to shout about, <laughs> but uh, I'm... Uh... I'm not sure how how much of the technical jargon is is going to make sense here, but uh, I, I'll say um, I'll come back to what we were talking about before. That what we're really trying to do is build a platform where all of these disciplines can come together and quickly make choices and quickly make decisions. So, say for instance, you, you've rooted a, a system through uh, through some area, and someone discovers there are some endangered species that lives on a plot of land that your system goes through. What uh, what we do is you, you go into Optioneer, you draw that on the map and you say, you can't, don't go here. You hit run again. And within two hours, you get uh, 25 new alternatives of what where you can go instead and what the trade-offs are. As we grow, we want to take that to more and more detail. So not just what does the system look like as a whole, but let's put this in the context of, of a 3D world. Let's put this in... You can zoom in on the map, and you you have your tower in front of you, and you can go to you can go to your house, and you can look up uh, towards the line. And you can say, "Can I see it or not? What would it look like in in the background?" And so on. So, really taking it from what at the very beginning of continuum was a line on an X Y plot into something where you can see this is what this would be in the real world. That's really what we're driving towards. Yeah. No, that's um, that sounds amazing. It's been fascinating to to kind of hear about the journey and and obviously what's coming um, soon. Which um, yeah, thanks so much for for coming on to to chat about it. Is LinkedIn the best place to see everything that's going on? Keeping in um, contact with you. Yes, uh, LinkedIn is uh, is the best place. My use of social media in general is uh, sporadic <laughs> at best, so uh, LinkedIn is going to be the place. Good, good. Well, yeah, all the best for the next kind of six to 12 months. It sounds like it's a really exciting time. As I said, it's been a pleasure to, to chat with you um, and I look forward to, to seeing more of the growth. Been a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks very much for listening to How I Built This, brought to you by Cathcart Technology, Scotland's technology recruitment experts. Whatever platform you're listening on, please click the follow button and share the podcast with anyone you think would be interested in listening. If you're a tech leader in Scotland and want to share your story, then please don't hesitate to get in touch. 
If you work within the tech sector and are looking for a job or looking for some help growing your tech team, then please get in touch with me, Jack Stephen, or follow us on our socials, Cathcart Technology, or via our website, cathcarttechnology.com. Thank you.